I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Intense clashes between Israel and Gaza are taking place after the Palestinian Islamist group Hamas launched a massive and unprecedented missile attack on Israel. Hello, I'm David Common, sitting in for Ian Hennemansing this week. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup, the podcast. It's really very hard to uh, grasp exactly the magnitude of what is taking place right now, but the numbers are staggering. What questions do you have about the current Israel-Hamas conflict? This was almost inevitable. They have been warning for months now of of a, quote, explosive situation. You know, this is a major failure by the Israeli political leadership, by Benjamin Netanyahu himself. And of course, it trickles down to the IDF, to the Israeli Defense Forces, and to the intelligence services. There is a huge amount of history in this region, one that has known incarnations of this conflict for decades. Flare-ups always seem to cost lives. So how's this time different? How did Israel not see this coming? And what's going to happen now? In our podcast, you'll hear answers to those questions from all sides. Reporters, a former Canadian ambassador, along with Palestinian and Israeli ambassadors to Canada. Plus, in the last half hour, a car is stolen once every six minutes in Canada. So our AMA today is devoted to your stories and questions about how to prevent car theft. I'm David Common in Toronto. From CBC Radio, this is Check Up, the podcast, cross-country checkups, live broadcast from October 8th, 2023. The attack on Israel, which began yesterday by the Islamist militant group Hamas, was the biggest in years. Israeli media say that at least 700 people have been killed in the country. Strikes in Gaza have also killed more than 400 Palestinians. Thousands more have been injured on both sides in this explosion of violence, and it is far from over. It is why we're now going to check in with freelance reporter Iris Mackler in Jerusalem. Hi, Iris. Hi, David. So nighttime there now, 36 hours since this invasion began. Uh, Israel has now formally declared war, calling up more reservists. What does that enable them to do, and what happens now? You know, it's an interesting thing. Israel hasn't declared war for 50 years. So um, anybody who says claims they know the rules of war, it's not quite plain. Since the 73 war, Israel has not been at war. And I think Benjamin Netanyahu, the first time he spoke, said uh, this attack is of such a scale that they have declared war on us. You know, this is a declaration of war. It's not just another operation um, that we sometimes have a back and forth with with Gaza. This is of a different magnitude. Uh, And normally when you declare war, there is a land, a ground offensive as well as airstrikes. So I think that there is a very serious discussion, not publicly in Israel, that politicians don't discuss this openly with the people, but in the cabinet Uh, And within the military, there's definitely a discussion about a ground offensive um, this time round in Gaza, slightly complicated, of course, by the fact 
that there are so many hostages there. Mm-hmm. I think the level of reaction inside Israel, people are still reeling from that figure of 700 dead in the space of one day. I was looking things up. It's the most deadly day that I can, could find going back 50 years to the war of 1973. Then 347 people died. This is twice as many. Then they were soldiers. Most of these are civilians. You mentioned the hostages. Israel saying they believe at this point more than 100 people have been taken hostage and have been pulled back into Gaza itself, being held now both by Hamas and Islamic Jihad. Can you explain the challenge of, of trying to get them back in such a densely populated urban warren of paths and laneways and high-rises? And even just to know who's there and where they are. I don't think they have ordered lists and they're not necessarily in the same place. Uh, Israel still doesn't have a handle on who exactly is there. Uh, We do know that there are soldiers, uh, civilians, including very old people in their 80s, and I've seen um, children aged two and four. So it's the whole range of civilians and soldiers And it's very complicated. There would have to be a deal. I mean, that was, I think, part of the reason for the taking of hostages, Mm -hmm. because uh, there are many, many Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. And usually if they're released, it's in a prisoner swap. Um, So I think they were always taken as the hostages meant to be swapped for Palestinian prisoners. I have read assessments that say no one... That, that Hamas exceeded beyond its wildest expectations and never thought that there would be more than 100 hostages. And I have read one of the Hamas leaders saying, now we have enough hostages to get all the Palestinian prisoners back. Yeah. So it's not just going in to rescue them. It's actually doing a deal that I think would be very complicated as well. And we think about one deal which took five years to negotiate for just a single Israeli soldier, but in return, Hamas got dozens and dozens of Palestinian prisoners released. Uh, Iris, you also mentioned the possibility of of a ground invasion. So Israel... uh, has not had occupying forces inside Gaza in a in a large scale way since 2005. Um, there is the effect, of course, uh, since that time. But can you speak about the challenges of sending a very large invasion force into Gaza itself? Well, Gaza is uh, tiny, crowded, and full of civilians, so they don't have anywhere anywhere else to go. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu did suggest that they should leave, you know, the places where they know Hamas leaders live, for example. But a whole population would have to break down, get get out from the other fence. They're not going to come back into Israel. They'd have to go out into Egypt. So if they don't go out, you're going to be fighting hand-to-hand with civilians all around you uh, and going in looking for Hamas leaders. That's one just difficulty of doing it. If you do, let's say there was a successful operation, uh, despite all the Iranian equipment that we now see is inside Gaza, that we saw from this operation is inside Gaza, including all their um, drones, mm-hmm. their military drones. If Let's say Israel was successful. Then what? Does it reoccupy Gaza? Who is it going to then rule Gaza? All of these questions are so complex uh, that, that just the thought of a ground war, of a ground offensive, uh, would have to be extremely well planned. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
so messy, all of it, so complicated, and of course, all of it involving lives, civilian, military, children on both sides. Iris Mackler uh, in Jerusalem, thank you very much. It's been a very long weekend for you so far, and so we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. I want to bring uh, in a guest who's going to be with us throughout the next hour to help uh, answer all of our questions um, and weigh in on your calls as we dive into this developing story. John Allen, a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He was also Canada's ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010, knows the region well, and he's here with me in our Toronto studio. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, David. Uh, I'd like to say it was a pleasure, but it's a pretty tragic day, tragic weekend. So it's, uh, but it's good to be here. Can you help us? Because you know, people, uh, some people follow this very, very closely. Uh, have family connections to the region. Others um, see this as, oh, there's there's more violence in the Middle East. Can you simply help us understand the context of how this is different? Well, um, there have been five previous uh, incursions, uh, rocket attacks by Hamas. And in each case, uh, they were dealt with by Israel. Um, Sometimes it took longer, sometimes less before a ceasefire was uh, negotiated. Uh, It's called mowing the lawn by the Israelis. You have an incursion, you go in, you quiet it, you try and keep the critics um, calm, especially those that live along the border. But this was different. Um, Here you had, for the first time, hundreds of uh, Hamas militants breaking through a barrier and uh, with weapons, but automatic weapons, not uh, tanks or anything else, killing um, over 600, perhaps more people, um, and as you mentioned, uh, a lot of civilians, mostly civilians, in a very kind of brutal way. So this has really shocked um, Israelis, it's shocked the world, but uh, as Iris mentioned the intelligence and the strategic failure uh, that uh, it demonstrated uh, has shocked all Israelis. They simply can't understand how this could have happened. Well, that's the contract with the state, isn't it? That you protect us, that we have this vast surveillance and intelligence network, and that you're supposed to know what's coming, especially when they're big things. And that didn't happen here. It didn't. Uh, You know, there are various reasons. Uh, We don't know them all now. There will be an inquiry. But I think one of the the issues that has to be examined is the dysfunctionality of the Bibi Netanyahu government. The fact, for example, that uh, various security cabinet meetings were being held without the presence of the Minister of Public Security or the Minister responsible for the West Bank because they were deemed too radical uh, to be involved. Uh, so you've got a dysfunctional government, you've got a, a Ministry of Defense which is saying this dysfunctionality is uh, hurting our security, um, it's weakening us, and you've got um, activity on the West Bank, and as a result, some units that had were supposed to be uh, on the Gaza border were moved to the West Bank mm-hmm. because of an upsurge in violence there. All of these things come together. There is, of course, um, the question of of why now. Uh, there have very clearly been 
indications that some sort of explosion was coming. Um, where, what, by whom, ultimately that wasn't clear. Do you have a sense of why this is occurring now? Well, you're right that people thought that something was going to blow, uh, expansion of settlements, talk of annexation, etc. But most people thought it was going to blow in the West Bank if it was going to blow, possibly in East Jerusalem. We've seen, as I said, an upsurge of terrorism uh, in, in, the, in Israel proper with Israelis being killed and, and Palestinians being killed. Why now? Um, well, uh, Hamas itself has said uh, they were doing this uh, because they wanted to oppose the occupation. Mm -hmm. They said they were doing it because of the desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Uh, ministers and other um, religious Israelis, not just visiting the mosque, but praying there contrary to the status quo. There's also the question of the Arab, uh, of the Israeli-Saudi-U.S. deal. Mm -hmm. some, and this is something that, that the Americans have been pushing for some time to try to do something that has never happened before, to have Saudi Arabia, a Sunni Muslim nation, recognize Israel and, and maintain diplomatic relations with it. Uh, of course, there's Sunni, Iran is Shia, and, and those two countries are often at odds with one another. Iran backing um, not just Hamas, but Hezbollah as well. Exactly, exactly. And uh, clearly, not, not, neither Iran nor Hamas and, neither, and, and not Hezbollah are interested in a deal mm -hmm. uh, that would uh, provide security guarantees for the Saudis, give them access to nuclear, civilian nuclear technology, uh, etc. Um, and they're not, frankly, Hamas, who's not interested in a two-state solution, is not interested in giving any benefit to the PA and Mahmoud Abbas in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. So this is, for them, an opportunity to demonstrate they are the defenders of the Palestinian people um, <clears throat> on the one hand, and on the other hand, to help their Iranian and Hezbollah partners by trying to scuttle this deal, certainly mm -hmm. taking it off the table for some time. Can we talk, and we'll get to, uh, we're, we're getting your, your questions um, and your comments here as we speak live with John Allen, Senior Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. Um, and we are here to take your questions about the Hamas-Israel conflict. Uh, but John, you know, before I get going, of course, you were Canada's ambassador uh, to this region. During that time, did you have the opportunity to visit Gaza or was that essentially, you did? Uh, no, no, I did, you not. did not. I okay. did not. I, I visited the border when another one of these incursions had taken place, rocket fire, mm -hmm. and we had to evacuate uh, Canadians uh, who were living uh, in the Gaza Strip at the time. Um, but uh, as ambassador to Israel, I didn't visit uh, Gaza. Our representative in Ramallah did. Can you describe what life is like in Gaza, what it has been like for decades? Uh, it is, as Iris explained, a very small area with somewhere between 2 and 2.5 million people. Um, it is a kind of prison uh, in the sense that uh, air, sea, and the border with both Israel and Egypt is closed. Uh, there is very little economic activity, so there's a high unemployment rate. 
primary health care uh, is, is all that's there. There's no sophisticated medical care. Um, the money that is, is um, being spent there um, and is supporting the economy is largely provided by UNRWA and the UN, uh, medical services, education provided through UNRWA. So it's a very uh, difficult place. And um, reporting out of Israel has suggested that uh, there's an increased despair following the election of the most recent government, mm -hmm. a government that seemed to be moving towards annexation of the West Bank and sort of the end of the idea of two states. Uh, much more to talk about there, John. I do just want to note for people listening um, that if you have a question um, for John or a comment, we are eager to hear about it. This is in relation to this latest chapter of the Hamas-Israel conflict that has kicked off this weekend. You can call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Uh, with that, let us um, uh, head to Vancouver and Jana Tubinschlak, um, who once lived in Israel. Hi, Jana. How are you? Hi, David. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm, I'm okay. Um, you wanted, I, 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 I see here in our notes that uh, your sister and your family are still in Israel. How are, how are they doing? Well, they are not doing too great. They are all safe physically at this point anyway, but there is a lot of distress. There is fear. My sister has equated the events of the past 24 hours to a pogrom. It all happened fast. It's, um, it's as many have already said, something that nobody has really experienced before on this scale and in this fashion. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, needless to say, there's a lot of there is a lot of worry, a lot of fear, a lot of distress. When you talk to people about this, Yana, it's uh, it's interesting because, of course, as I don't have to tell you, in Canada we have people who have, like you, family in um, in this region who are intimately impacted by it, and it is a region with so much history that trying to explain it to people who have not lived that history is complex because where do you start in what year how how do exactly. you find that how do you find that challenge yes i have actually found it to be challenging uh well partially because i myself have limited understanding although i have lived there for quite a while and i have experienced events in the past that have given me some perspective and still it's really hard to tie all these events together into one coherent narrative. But some of the things I have most difficulty with is explaining to people that it's not as simple as just, oh, if only Israel stopped the occupation and withdrew from the occupied territories, things would be fine. And making it look as though Israel is just sitting there because it just wants to occupy it because it has nothing better to do. When in fact, at least during all the years that I was there, I mean, my perception was that, and still is, that Israel neither wants nor needs this occupation. It just really does not know how to extricate itself from a situation that is just not providing any viable solution for them. 
I remember during the Oslo Accords in 1993, I was there actually in the newsroom of the Israeli broadcaster when Yitzhak Rabin shook hands with Yasser Arafat. Mm -hmm. And you should have heard the room erupt in cheers and hugs and people cried. And we were all so excited, hoping that finally there will be uh, some kind of tangible beginning of a final, not final, but a, a lasting peaceful solution. And something went sideways, and something just kept going sideways every time. And during the summer of 2005, when the Israelis withdrew from Gaza in ostensibly the first step towards giving them self-government, the hope again was that now, well, we can work towards something, and then Hamas moved in. And the blockade happened, which is not there because Israel just wants to keep the Gazans from getting medical supplies. It's there because of, you know, all the mm-hmm. weapons that are getting smuggled in. So, But Yana, there is, my- there is also the, uh, and, and we're not going to resolve um, this issue together on the phone, if only it was that of easy, course. right? But th- there is, yeah. of course, the effect that, yes, in, in trying to blockade weapons, life for those who live in Gaza um, is very difficult, and not just for that Absolutely. reason. And That's true. you yes, seem to have I'm a recognition aware. of that. Oh, yes, yes. No, my heart goes out to all the Palestinian people. And in fact, many Israelis do care. And uh, we, we, we recognize how tragic the situation is. And it just seems like everybody's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And thank goodness I haven't been tasked with figuring out a solution because I can't see my way forward to one at this point. So mm-hmm. hopefully greater minds will keep thinking about this because it's quite, it's quite discouraging. It certainly is. Yana, thank you so much for your call. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, we're not going to get into the full complexity of all of this, but you're at least acknowledging for us, for us all, about how complex it really is. Absolutely, yes. And thank you for talking about this. It's an important issue, and not just for Israel, but for the entire Middle East and by proxy for, well, for everyone, I would think. Absolutely. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Uh, John, you as you listen to Yano there, spent 18 years living in, in Israel, and uh, a recognition that this is extraordinarily complex. There have been many, many attempts at some form of peace. Some, you know, whether they've always been in good faith or not is is perhaps debatable. But um, here we are: the two leaders she mentions, both dead, one assassinated. Uh, where where do you stand after listening to that? Well, I I think um, she made a lot of sense. Um, on the Palestinian side, you've got Hamas, whom I said has not agreed to a two-state solution, wants one state, <clears throat> would like to defeat Israel. On the other side, you've got a, a aging, corrupt administration uh, in, in the PA. So you don't have a great partner right now. But unfortunately, on the Israeli side, you've had a prime minister who for 15 years has been in power and has... I think, polarized the country and used um, both uh, uh, Iran and the Palestinians uh, as a way to uh, keep the country uh, in fear to some extent. And um, the expansion of settlements, which has continued and and grown, um, doesn't instill in Palestinians who do want peace a lot of confidence that uh, Israel is with them. Mm-hmm. And frankly, what we need, and, and I think Yana would agree, is we need leadership 
uh, that realizes that this cycle of violence will go on for a long time unless we can uh, come together in compromise on key issues, which everybody knows about, uh, and, and try and, uh, and solve this. It's not going to happen easily. Um, it's going to take a lot of trust. Um, but uh, ultimately, ultimately, uh, the occupation can't continue, and Israelis must be able to live in peace and stop sending their kids uh, into the military and into war. And Palestinians need um, their own state at some point when we have the kind of leadership that I think you and I realize uh, the region needs. Uh, we are taking your questions here about the Hamas-Israel conflict, um, particularly as we've entered a very dangerous phase this weekend, an explosive phase. And um, with that, I'm going to turn to Mitch, who's calling from Huntsville, Ontario. Hi, Mitch, you have a question. Uh, yes, Ian, can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Okay, very good. It's a pleasure to be on with you and your very learned guest, John, there. Um, the question I have is about the essentially the culpability of Gazans and at the time, the Gazan voting population, when it came to the election of Hamas in 2006. And I'll draw a historical parallel here, where, um, you know, in 1933, the NASDAQ, the Nazis, won 43% of the vote in Germany. And that voting population that was responsible for voting for the Nazis in 1933 were culpable for the bombs that were falling on their heads in 1942. In 2006... Hamas was elected with 44% of support, and I believe in 2007, though John could probably correct me, uh, they ended up taking over the entire Gaza Strip and eliminating all other political parties. At this point, is there any possibility? I mean, because in the charter of Hamas, it is inherently genocidal. It is inherently wanting to destroy Israel, and I believe they made that very clear to the Gazan voters who voted for them and then put them into power so they could take complete control. So my question, I guess, is what is the culpability of the people of Gaza themselves for the situation that we are in now? Because uh, Israel has declared war. This won't just be another police action. They're not going to stop until Hamas is destroyed. And I fear in the days and weeks ahead we could be looking at uh, tens of thousands of casualties in Gaza as a result of this campaign. All right, Mitch, a lot to chew off on there. Thank you very much uh, for that question. You you are asking about, um, in particular, that, that election in 2006 that brought Hamas to power. And John, I will turn to you. Well, I'm not sure that we want to hold people who voted in 2007 for a party um, uh, to account uh, right now. I think you're absolutely right that Hamas is not going to be a partner for peace. Um, they're not interested, um, and uh, the activities that they engaged in this weekend demonstrate that. But um, the, the Palestinian people, whether in the West Bank and in Gaza, uh, frankly, like the German people, uh, not those who supported the Nazis, but others, um, and and others around the world uh, can't always be uh, responsible for the leadership they end up with. I'm not sure when they voted, they were voting in uh, a, a Hamas government, which frankly doesn't take care of them particularly well, which uses them as a tool um, in uh, their own fight against Israel. 
so um, I feel for uh, all the people on both sides, and and I think what we have to do is is get Hamas out of the picture, and um, and get a real vote uh, at some point in Gaza and in the West Bank, and see what the young people who are there now feel and want <clears throat> before we sort of look back to 2007. All right. I'm going to turn now to uh, Diane Cohen, who's on uh, Saturna Island. Um, and Diane, uh, I know you lived in Israel for 27 years, and your eldest daughter is in the IDF right now. Tell me what's happening with her. Yeah, she was um, called up um, yesterday, and her partner is also, they were in the same unit um, in the West Bank. Um, so she's been called up. She's in logistics, and um, my other two children are safe at home with their father. You know, I mean, they're older. They're twenty, twenty-eight. My son is twenty-five, and my daughter is twenty-six, seven, and my other daughter is thirty. Um, and uh, um, you know, there was a lot of people killed at the um, the festival, and some of my my son's close friends were at the festival, and um, one of them did make it out alive, but uh, he's now going back to do what he can to help. Uh, and I completely agree with um, the state that um, the Palestinian territories are in, um, Gaza and the West Bank and everything. It's it's subhuman. But the brutality that, uh, you know, has been witnessed, um, you know, 260 people that were just out dancing killed. And I know there's a lot of anger, but um, I don't know. I just, I don't understand how... You know, the brutality is not going to, you know, get a response back. I mean, I'm, you know, please, God, let, you know, make sure that, that you know, people don't um, become the same way as what they've, they've witnessed right now. Um, I'm terribly concerned for the, the people that have been taken because of the, the anger and frustration that's in, in, the, in, in the strip right now. But um, um, I just I just don't understand how this is going to come to an end. Uh, I I I I'm just if, if anybody can help me with that, I'd appreciate it. John, you you've spoken as if there is a pathway, and I think some people listening will think after all this time, is there is there really? What makes you think after? listening to to Diane speaking so eloquently with with uh, with a daughter quite literally in the fight what makes you think there is a possibility well first of all let me just um, wish your children the best and uh, and we are concerned for you and and your family as you watch what's going on in Israel um, uh, yeah, in 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 ter- what makes me uh, optimistic, uh, looking forward is that hope is absolutely necessary. What makes me optimistic is that I sometimes think that Israelis and Palestinians think they have the only uh, difficult situation in the world, and that somehow theirs is insoluble. And I look at the situation between Protestants and Catholics who fought for 400 years and a deal was made. And um, I look at South Africa where people thought that apartheid was going to last 50 more years 
and one day it ended. Mm. And I look at the Berlin Wall where nobody had any idea uh, that uh, the wall was going to fall and that uh, communism as we knew it was going to end. Nobody in 1989. And it did. And uh, therefore, I think we don't have to assume that this conflict is inevitable and that there is no possibility of peace. Rather, I think we have to listen to former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, Tsipi Livni, former foreign minister, and hundreds of ex-IDF, Mossad, and Shin Bet officers who now all agree that the biggest threat to Israel is not Iran, is not Hamas, but is the monkey on their back, this occupation in which they are either going to have to go into Gaza and reoccupy that with all of the terrible consequences or continue to um, occupy uh, Palestinians for another 50 years. I agree with the former uh, caller who said Israel, Israelis don't want to do that. But an Israeli government uh, has to come to that realization and do what it can. It can't convince Palestinians. It can't convince their leaders. But it can take steps to demonstrate uh, that it is interested. And if the Palestinians can't respond, then uh, Israelis can at least say we've given it another try. For more uh, reaction on this situation, I want to bring in uh, Mona Abu Amara, who is the chief representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada. We have reached her in Ottawa. Ms. Abu Amara, welcome. Welcome, Ambassador, to the program. Good evening. Uh, thank you for having me, and uh, good evening, Alan. I wonder if we could start, Ambassador, about um, your thoughts on the situation this weekend. Well, um, it's devastating, and uh, let me start by sending my wishes and hopes and prayers for an end um, to the loss of lives and for peace and justice to triumph. And what are you hearing from your contacts about the situation in Gaza, the situation in, in the West Bank uh, right now? Um, it's devastating. Um, we have uh, a... Uh, superpower um, that is um, having an aggression, uh, aggressive attack on 2 million people stuck uh, in uh, 364 square kilometers, uh, half of them children. Um, we have heard yesterday the Israeli prime minister uh, declare war um, on those people. And uh, he actually went on to ask them to leave Gaza. So I don't know if he forgot or purposefully uh, ignores the fact that Gaza has been in the biggest uh, open air prison for the past 15 years. So uh, Gazans have nowhere to actually run. Even those with the small kids, sick kids who want uh, to go out for cancer treatment haven't been able to do so and get permission to leave. So it's a call for genocide in our perspective, and we are awaiting a horrific reaction. We hope that uh, uh, we can hear about uh, a stop 
to uh, all aggressions uh, in the coming hours. Okay, there's there's a million things in there, and I know um, some people listening. Uh, uh, we have a limited amount of time. We're we're not going to be able to address everything that that you've um, thrown in there. And this is a very complex situation. I know that some people uh, listening will be angry or encouraged or both because this is such a divisive issue. But if I focus down on um, the event that took place with um, with Hamas planning this, a thousand fighters coming across the border, uh, attacking, in most cases, Israeli civilians at a music festival, taking hostages, which include, at least as far as we know, one pregnant woman, children, that particular act, and I, I understand that it's in the context of everything else that has happened over decades, over centuries, that particular act, does that concern you? Listen, all loss of life uh, is tragic. And uh, the problem is that in the past 48 hours, all Western media um, has been life talking um, to people about an act while we haven't heard any of uh, such calls for the tragic and despicable and atrocious um, acts that have been uh, happening to the Palestinian people. This did not come um, as a surprise. Uh, the attack um, um, came after uh, all of these years of warnings of a vacuum when there is no any outline for a peaceful resolution, when the Palestinian people's human rights is not respected, when the dehumanization and normalization of their torture is accepted. So it's acceptable to, to do so uh, for the Palestinians. But then when we come and talk, the Palestinians are the ones who are asked to condemn and stand and take a stand, not the occupying power, which is the root problem the to uh, and the cause for everything that is happening. We need to treat the root problem. No occupation is there uh, uh, for a reason. Occupation must end. And if we are doing so on the uh, political sphere in other places, there can't be any excuses for the Israeli occupation to stay and terrorize and, um, the Palestinian indigenous population any longer. What would a ground invasion mean for Palestinians who live in Gaza? Genocide. Okay, Genocide. unpack that for me. What do what do you what do you anticipate to happen? Um, it's it's such a small space uh, when you have these uh, rockets uh, bring down uh, apartment buildings, uh, high rises, and uh, uh, so imagine that in a condensed area where there are house to house to the wall to wall houses and. Uh, this will bring us. I actually am a little bit uh, um, not frustrated, just devastated right now because be right before I came on the show, uh, a colleague uh, who's a diplomat as well um, just put out uh, uh, news of uh, the killing, uh, the murder of 20 of his family, 20 in so. Uh, I, I can't have anyone come and say children and adults, women and everyone. So I don't know who can come and say that these are terrorist Palestinians or give uh, an excuse for why that could happen. So we will be witnessing such travesties, especially with the green light that has been given, unfortunately, by the international community and its liberal democracies. Where, where did this happen? 
Uh, it's in Gaza, in in the middle of Gaza. I, I just looked at the numbers of people, but uh, I can look again and give you the exact information. Their family, last name of the family is Zanin. There are 20 members there. They listed all their names. All right. Mona Abu Amara, thank you uh, very much. Um, uh, this uh, this is clearly hitting you as it is so many people who live in this Canada, so, uh, who live in Canada, uh, who have family. Um, Can I in this um, just um, uh, mm -hmm. for last thing because we want to leave with um, just a, Please? a yep. little bit of hope um, from the international community. As I told you, the key is accountability. International law as Mr. Allen said, is the only way forward. And we need to allow the organs that have been created for that precise reason to do their job. And Canada and, and the Western world that is calling for that, for Ukraine, can't be the reason they get blocked. So our hope is to have that um, demanded by Canadians and by um, everyone who believes in a rules-based international order without exceptions, because Palestinians deserve that as well. Mona Abu Amara, thank you very much. Chief Representative of the Palestinian General Delegation to Canada, thank you. Uh, we reached uh, the ambassador in Ottawa today. We are going to bring in uh, Israel's ambassador-designate to Canada in uh, just a moment. Before I do that, I just want to read some of the comments that you've been sending us through social media. Um, uh, Damon Ligon's emails, Israel has peace with Egypt and Jordan, um, so they show the will. Do you think Iran and Hamas can be brought to the table? That is something we will uh, turn back um, to, to Mr. Allen here in just a moment. Um, Gigi emailing, would the Canadian government evacuate Canadians presently living in Israel if the situation becomes worse? We are aware of some other countries, Poland, for instance, which is in the process uh, of doing that. Uh, there are commercial flights which are continuing, although in limited form, Air Canada, for instance, uh, at least temporarily suspended their flights to Ben Gurion Airport in Tel Aviv. So we will get uh, more to your questions um, in just a moment. You can always go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. With that, I want to get the Israeli perspective um, here with Ido um, Moed, uh, Israel's ambassador-designate to Canada. We've reached him in Ottawa. A ambassador, good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, can you uh, tell us about uh, the situation right now uh, in in Israel, as you understand it? The situation in Israel, I would I would like to to uh, compare it a little bit to uh, a wonderful, quiet uh, Thanksgiving uh, morning uh, here in Canada, when people go uh, about their uh, business and have breakfast with their families at home with the big family. And all of a sudden, a rain of uh, brockets fall around them, followed by terrorists uh, carrying guns and shooting at point-blank range, everybody in their way, uh, shooting at young baby, at babies, young children, women, uh, old people, uh, hi hijacking people, kidnapping people. Uh, an 84, 85-year-old uh, grandmother is, is, is carried on a motorcycle, uh, into Gaza and more and more of that. So the feeling now in Israel is of utter horror and shock of this horrendous attack, this barbaric, uh, unspeakable, uh, there are no words to describe. And we still don't have words because we are still um, discovering what is going on. And uh, the more we know, the shocking it is, the more shocking it becomes. 
So this is the feeling on the one hand. And on the other hand, of course, uh, Israeli uh, military, the IDF, is uh, reacting very strongly and swiftly wherever it's necessary, still fighting some of the terrorists that are present in on Israeli territory um, and also making sure that this time uh, terror will not reign. Uh, you... we, uh, sorry, just to add a very important remark, we declared war on a terror organization and I think that's an unprecedented, almost unprecedented because we realize that we are facing a phenomenon that uh, not only is uh, serious for us, but I think only also on a broader sense in the Middle East. Ambassador, sort of in the phases of what's happened here, Hamas uh, was able to uh, seemingly, um, without prior notice by Israel's surveillance system, was able to cross the frontier, get into 22-odd villages and cities, uh, carry out these attacks, um, and take hostages. And while the, the attacks on those communities have now largely been suppressed, uh, the hostages, more than 100 of them reportedly, have been taken into Gaza. How does that complicate matters? What does this next phase look like? It is a very complicated because uh, not only the, first, the, the next phase uh, in, in, in this specific area, uh, and not only because we have uh, maybe six or seven hundred uh, people killed, which is which is an astronomous number. This is really mind-boggling. Uh, this also complicates things. Uh, we must remember that it is complicated because behind Hamas there is more. Hamas is not operating by itself. Hamas is coordinating with other terrorist organizations. First of all, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. They are on, in this together. They are both supported and armed by Iran. They are directed by Iran. And I think that on the other side, there is also the Hezbollah and uh, that is also very, very uh, happy to uh, press on the trigger, hit the trigger and start their own uh, little war. And I think this is what is complicated. It's complicated because there is a state behind all of this. And it's complicated because this has bearings on a broader region of the Middle East and perhaps much more beyond that. If we realize that Iran has, Iran has missiles that reach into Europe, if we know that they target Israelis and Jewish organizations worldwide, we actually have to think about a role player that is, that is creating something that is extremely dangerous. And that's why we're calling on the international community to make sure that this uh, conflict does not escalate beyond its range right now. As you said, it is complicated for Gaza, it's true but it may also escalate much more. And regarding the people of Gaza, just to add to that, we have nothing against the people of Gaza. The last few months, Israel has invested a lot of efforts to alleviate conditions for Palestinians in Gaza, mm -hmm. to have more Palestinians work in Israel, trade with Israel, import goods to produce uh, in factories and actually change the economy there. All but but Ambassador, the, I, just to jump in while yeah. you're making that point, Israel has also... Um, in in the face of this attack has cut off all electricity, fuel, and goods going into Gaza. Uh, and that will have an immediate effect in a place where more than two and a half million people live. What, what is, the, what is the, the desired impact of striking at people who themselves are not the fighters? Cutting off electricity and water is of itself, in itself uh, a measure that we have to take in order for us to uh, conduct this operation and hopefully 
it will be a very swift, swift and strong operation that will eliminate terrorists from Gaza. It's not the population, but the terrorists hide among the population. And if you look at pictures, and I can share with you, uh, is a lot of pictures where you see that their headquarters, their ammunition, and the presence of the uh, highest the commanders are inside the most densely populated parts of the Gaza Strip. So these people are cowards, they hide behind people, they shoot from behind people, and they are actually seeking a way for us to target those people. They take the population of Gaza as hostages as well in their own way. They don't allow elections, they don't allow any private enterprise unless it is benefiting the Hamas. So this reign of terror is the reason why this whole operation is it has started and they bear all responsibility for the repercussions of this operation right now ambassador uh, we will leave it there with you thank you very much thank you ido moed is israel's ambassador designate to canada we uh, are taking your questions today about the hamas israel conflict you can call us at one 888 8333. You can send us your AMA questions at cbc.ca slash aircheck. Um, and uh, we've got, um, we've got uh, with us uh, former Canadian Ambassador John Allen, who is a senior fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs and Public Policy. He was Canada's ambassador to Israel uh, from 2006 to 2010, here to take some of those questions and, and offer his answers. And I will just say, as you know, as we talk about this, we are trying to um, remain calm, and, and it's uh, very difficult to do that uh, for many people um, at this time, and good reason for many people to not be calm. They're, they're angry, they're scared, uh, they have friends and family um, on both sides of this conflict who, who uh, may be injured, may be involved in the fight, and uh, we recognize that not everything you're, you're, you're going to hear here is, um, is something you agree with, um, and, and please feel free to, to write to us. It seems every single time we, we attempt to cover this conflict, we are ourselves learning, and uh, so we, we appreciate that. Um, John, with that, I will um, turn to some of these questions that we're getting. I was referring to them before. So Israel has peace with, with Egypt and Jordan. There are peace deals. And, and Damon Liggins is asking, do you think Iran and Hamas can be brought to the table? And we've got just a, a short period of time to try to answer a very complex question. I don't think Iran and Hamas can be brought to the table now. Uh, no, um, I don't. <clears throat> I don't think so. I, I, I think uh, there should be efforts um, uh, to try and bridge some of the gaps uh -huh. between Iran and Israel. I think you know diplomacy can have some effect, but I don't think Iran, the current regime there, is interested in doing that and and I think as we've seen Hamas is not interested in doing that I would just say in response um, to the comments by the the Palestinian representative uh, I too uh, am concerned about uh, the length of the occupation and the treatment of Palestinians but that doesn't justify what happened this weekend and not only doesn't it justify it but Hamas has to know that there was going to be a huge response by Israel. And if they were seriously concerned about the Palestinian people in Gaza, they might have had second thoughts about um, what they did and how they did it. Um, and, and I just don't think uh, that this is in any way advancing the Palestinian cause. In fact, I think it's setting it back, just as the Second Intifada 
in many ways turned many Israelis from peaceniks into more hard right because they saw the bombs exploding in the cafes and in the buses. Mm-hmm. So we've, we, we, if, if we do want to move this forward, uh, we can't allow the extremists on either side to, to um, uh, move the agenda. But, we, but some would argue the extremists are running both sides. Absolutely. And I think that's what's happening right now. You've got extremists on both sides uh, who have taken control and they are feeding fears amongst uh, both sides. And it's going to take a a while until uh, people are going to calm down. Janice Braun is emailing two questions. Um, I'm going to handle the first, John, and I'm going to turn to you for the second. Uh, Her first question, has Hamas used up its rockets in the Saturday attack? Are they now spent out? Um, We don't know the answer to that. The likelihood is no. The likelihood is uh, they have been able to maintain these supply lines of getting these rockets in um, and perhaps are, are going to continue to be successful of getting more in or have them stockpile. The second question she asks, how insecure, unsafe has the world become this weekend? And it's a good question, John, that this is um, uh, this is a, a tinderbox, and when there's more of a fire there, it tends to spread. Hmm. What is the risk? And well, you've got one minute, by the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we've seen that the Americans have sent uh, some of the Sixth Fleet into the region. Mm-hmm probably to send a message to Iran and Hezbollah that it wouldn't be a good idea if they got involved. But Hezbollah is much stronger than Hamas, has many more rockets and weapons. And if they were to get involved, and if Israel were to have to respond on that front as well, then you can see the situation getting uh, somewhat out of control. Um, Hopefully, Countries like the Gulf, in the Gulf, might try and put some pressure on both Hamas mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and Israel uh, to calm things down as fast as possible. But <clears throat> and John, I'm going to jump in on you there. The reason I was only giving you a minute is because at this point, we actually have to say goodbye to our TV viewers on CBC Nes- Network as we continue the show live on CBC Radio and CBC Gem. Rosie Barton is next on CBC News Network. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. And with our... um TV viewers heading out. Uh, We are starting hour two of Cross Country Checkup live on CBC Radio. Uh, In about 30 minutes, um, we're going to turn to our Ask Me Anything segment, which is a a hard turn uh, towards a story that I was actually looking into. You may have seen it um, from last month on car theft, where we went to Ghana and tracked down a car that had been stolen uh, from a man here in Canada. That happens a lot. There is 
almost unprecedented levels of auto theft going on in, in Canada right now, particularly theft for export to the Middle East and Africa. We'll be exploring that, hearing your stories. You can start calling now, one 888 You can send us a text to, uh, that's at 226-758-8924. Okay. Um, I want to get now to um, Jihad Alawaiwi, uh, who is in Toronto. Jihad, are you able to hear me now? Yes, thank you for having me. Yes, and I'm sorry it's taken us a while to get to you. There is uh, often a question about how Western, in particular, Western media um, covers this conflict and covers this conflict when there are events, um, as there are this weekend. You are a Palestinian-Canadian. I would ask you how you see that coverage oh the coverage is shockingly biased one-sided but also it's actually not accurate because this is a conflict where the palestinians have been especially in gaza routinely under attack routinely um, um undermined every aspect of their life the blockade is so complete that we don't really hear about this and the suggestion by the media that this attack and response from Hamas has come out of blue sky is kind of shocking. It's verifiably false. There is an active conflict. Yes, I, I mean, I take your point there. I think I think it's that it came out of the blue sky. Clearly, there has been a tinderbox and an explosion was likely to happen. It's just that Israel, with its formidable surveillance network, did not see it coming, was not able to stop it. Yeah, but that's not the story. The story is that that... <laughs> that the Palestinians have been under occupation and the suggestion that Israel really does not want to be there, it's so inconvenient, but they have to be there, is actually false. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have elections after elections in Israel that produces the same right-wing government that is committed to expanding settlements and strengthening the matrix of the occupation in the West Bank and Gaza. So I, I, I don't know how this can be actually objectively debated, because that's the government that has been in place for years. The media here has to really reflect and say, at the very least, the Palestinians have a grievance. They are the other side of the conflict. Mm -hmm. We are talking about um, 200, 300 Israeli hostages. There are 6,000 prisoners in Israeli jails. That includes children, and that includes women, including men. So the, the scale is just... The Israel is the aggressor and the occupier. We can, we can dress it in, any, in every situation. I am a resident of Canada, but also I'm a resident of the West Bank, mm -hmm. of the city of Hebron. Before the peace process, before Oslo, I was actually able to go anywhere in, in, in Israel. I was able to go to Jerusalem, to Nazareth, to Haifa. I did not need a permit to do that. The moment the peace process started, I cannot do any of that. So Palestinians have not seen any positive outcome. You cannot actually ask a, a point to a Palestinian, there's one single objective benefit to the peace process. Nothing. In fact, has worth, life has worsened. And you can blame the Palestinians, you can blame their, their, their authority and their corruption, but that's not really the main reason. The main reason is the continued presence and the strengthening of the occupation 
in the West Bank and the blockade around Gaza. This, you, you can dance around it. You can go back. The Palestinians will respond in one way or the other. The only thing that is shocking the West now is that the Palestinians have actually managed to mm-hmm. have a response that is comparably in kind to what Israel has been doing for years. Jihad, just, just to, to put it bluntly, do you think that the occupation by Israel justifies Hamas's actions this weekend? Now, international norms really provide people who are occupied and unjustly treated the right to resist. Mm-hmm. You may complain about how to resist. The analogy is Israel has both of their feet on the necks of the Palestinians and they complain about our reflexes. I think we have to rethink that there are 3 million Palestinians in the West Bank and uh, and 2 million in Gaza that are under the full control of another authority. I cannot go to Hebron, my hometown, without passing a very sophisticated system of permits, of pass systems to get to my hometown. Hebron is 800,000 people, the government, the whole, the whole area. There is really one checkpoint that can completely chalk it off from the rest of the West Bank. And Israeli soldiers on that checkpoint called container can do that in a matter of minutes. And people can go in and out. And that's just an example of it. Yeah. Jihad, I'm going to have to leave it there with you, um, but thank you. I, I, I think it is, uh, you, you made a lot of points there, um, and we are just trying to broaden our understanding here. I'm, I'm going to turn to John, particularly about the first point that Jihad was making, about the, the double standard in Canadian media and Western media when it comes to um, Palestinian and Israeli conflicts, not simply this one. Is there, yeah, what, what do you make of that? Well, if you talk to uh, Israelis and mm-hmm. if you were to ask the uh, uh, Israeli ambassador to Canada, he would say, for example, that the BBC is blatantly uh, anti-Israel mm-hmm. and um, pro-Palestinian and that they always focus on the flight of the Palestinians. I think if you were to look at Al Jazeera, you would uh, uh, say that uh, there's clearly a focus uh, on one way as opposed to the other. Um, I, I think it, it, it's true that uh, we, as former colonials, as as Western countries, do look at this conflict um, probably uh, more in in in, uh, in in light of the terrorism versus free country perspective than the occupation uh, perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, I think most people in the West don't quite understand what's happening in terms of the occupation. But at the same time, uh, I, I think uh, people who simply dismiss what's going on in the governments of the Palestinians miss that if there were elections there um, and, and if there was legitimacy there, then you would have a, a, a political force that could reasonably approach the Israelis and, and demand um, action on their part. But 
On your point, yeah, there's. I think there's a bias. There's a certain bias. Um, there's a certain, you know, global north versus global south bias in a lot of things we do. We're trying to change that, um, and and we should continue to try and change it. Um, but uh, that doesn't take away from what happened this weekend, unfortunately. Okay, we've got a, a few minutes left here on our main topic uh, here today as we look at the events um, in uh, Israel, the the attack by Hamas, and of course in the greater context of um, the situation, the, the dire situation, which has long been dire in Gaza. Uh, with that, we're going to turn to uh, Michael Maloney in Perth, Ontario. Hi, Michael. Hi. I understand you're a retired soldier, retired warrant officer. You served in the, the Middle East in um, the 60s and 70s in UN peacekeepers. Have you got a question? Yes, I'm wondering. Uh, it, it has been addressed just re- recently about the uh, uh, cutting off the power sort of thing. And I, I was, what I, my question was why people weren't discussing whether it would be useful or not for the, uh, the Israelis to uh, surround the Gaza Strip, cut it off, cut off the fuel, medicine, hydro, mm. with the attempt to get their prisoners swapped. Because uh, there's really doesn't seem to be any any care about uh, life in in the in the Gaza Strip, but the Israelis are really really. Uh, it's really important that they get their people back. Okay, Michael, thank, uh, thanks for your question. I'm going to turn that question over to John Allen, um, former Canadian ambassador to Israel now. Yeah, I think that's a pretty tough response. Uh, essentially, um, it's a bit like um, home destructions uh, in response uh, to uh, uh, an attack by... Uh, a relative of the person whose home is being destroyed. I don't think we can put all of the Palestinians uh, in the Gaza Strip <clears throat> under this kind of hardship uh, in, in, in order to try and get back these hostages, which is now, some Palestinians crucial. Would, some Palestinians would argue that such a siege, in fact, already exists. They would. Uh, the, to some extent, uh, it, it does, but um, certainly, uh, and and right now in the short term, it may. But that's that's what is being proposed. I think is first of all, I don't think it's workable. I don't think the international community, after a while, would allow it to continue. And I think um, uh, there's going to have to be some serious, real negotiations to get those those desperate hostages out. Mm-hmm. Rather than um, this kind of heavy-handed uh, action, uh, let's uh, head to Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, and uh, David Papazian. Hi, David. Hello, David Common. How are you? What's your question? Well, thank you for thank you. Um, it's a very difficult time, and uh, mm-hmm. I admire your guests' uh, uh, diplomatic uh, uh, responses to many questions. I. I I envy that, really. <laughs> I wish I could emulate some of that. And um, I, uh, I I'm in my mid seventies, and I've watched this uh, from afar uh, for a long time. And 
I'm, I fear that um, at the moment these these 600 uh, Israeli deaths uh, is a huge number, and um, but my my um, take over the years is that generally speaking, the the death toll uh, in conflicts between Israel and Palestine uh, is about one one for Israel and 20 for the Palestinians, and I. I'm hoping that that that's not the case when this is all over, um, because those numbers would be huge. And um, uh, Israel has the capability to do just about anything it wants militarily. Uh, it's one of the most militarized states in in the world, really. Uh, however, um, my question, I guess, has to do with. Um, what what it would why after you know decades and decades mm-hmm. uh, has there not been a any uh, real meaningful um, negotiation um, between Israel and Palestine for a two state solution? Um, it seems every time that it looks like there might be. Then something happens. Uh, I remember very well uh, Ariel Sharon when he when he went into the mosque in Jerusalem uh, in 2000, 2000 September, I think it was, mm-hmm. and just uh, put a smithereens to uh, Bill Clinton's efforts to do something before he left office in terms of a, a meaningful. Uh, peace, you know, a two-state solution. I believe that uh, <clears throat> that the uh, in Israel there's there is a majority of people in Israel that that would accept and would would agree to a meaningful two-state solution. Uh, David, uh, I'm going to jump in on you there, just only recognizing the, the time that we've got on this, and I want to get it in front of uh, John Allen, uh, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Uh, John, uh, there have been efforts. Um, over the years, some of them uh, closer than others, and yet it's never worked. Why? Well, <clears throat> some of the the key issues, um, who owns Jerusalem, the right of return of Palestinian refugees, I'd say probably those two have been sticking points uh, in the previous negotiations. And... Um, to some extent, uh, both sides have been uh, unable to compromise, but I think overall uh, it was a, uh, a perhaps a, a weakness on the Palestinians' part to uh, do the necessary uh, in order to accept that all Palestinians would not be coming back and uh, for the Israelis to accept that there was going to have to be a division of, of Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So... There, there were uh, there were negotiations, and 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 uh, they did get close. Um, they weren't all scuttled by <clears throat> by Israelis, um, and there can be uh, negotiations again, uh, and 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 there should be. But uh, we need a, a situation, an environment that allows that to go forward, uh, and we don't have it right now. Um, but. Um, it uh, it is possible, uh, and um, and it, 
I think both sides have to uh, make a real effort uh, in that regard. All right. I want to turn now uh, to Claire Porter-Robbins, who's a former humanitarian worker who has lived in Gaza and the West Bank, though we have reached her now in Calgary. Hi, Claire. Hi. Thanks for having me, David. Uh, We have heard from some people on the program um, thus far about the living conditions uh, for Palestinians in both the West Bank and and Gaza. Um, You have lived in both places, and and particularly in Gaza, which is now the focus of Israel's response. Mm -hmm. What, uh, What do you think they're experiencing? So I've had the chance uh, to speak with some of my former colleagues and friends who are, are in Gaza right now, and it's, it's absolutely terrifying. It's, it's terrifying in Israel right now. It's terrifying in Gaza. It's terrifying in the West Bank. Um, but what my friends in particular in Gaza have been saying, uh, one of my friends is a mother of three children under the age of 10 and... Um, what some people listening might not know is that before there are Israeli airstrikes in Gaza um, that might be targeting your building, you often, although not all the time, get a call from an Israeli commander saying you have two minutes to leave the house. And so my friend Ruba got that call this morning. She had, I think, five minutes to get out of the house with her three kids. She'd packed a bag. And she headed uh, as soon as she could to her, her parents' house with her kids. Um, she later found out that her neighbors, uh, their entire family had been killed, uh, a family of 22, four of whom were just visiting for a couple of days from um, Belgium. So it's, it's an absolutely devastating amount of uncertainty to be a person and to be a parent in. She's trying to entertain her children. She's trying to uh, support them. She's also a doctor and she's thinking about her patients right now. She's uh, not able to access the clinic that she works in. Soon she will. Um, and, and she knows that there's just going to be an absolutely catastrophic humanitarian situation and medical situation coming. And uh, she has nowhere, no way to prepare mm-hmm. um, other than having a go bag. There's nothing you can do. There have been... Um... There have, of course, been conflicts and incursions by Israel into Gaza um, in response to attacks, uh, something that is now seemingly likely to happen um, on the land. Of course, there are already airstrikes, as you've laid out. I know when you were part of Doctors Without Borders, you were one of the first groups to enter Gaza after um, a similar conflict in 2022. Um, Mm -hmm. What did you do? What did you see? So um, actually, Doctors Without Borders was still there. I just had been in Jerusalem at the time of the attack and entered as soon as it was open again. And I went to one of our clinics and spoke with um, a group of brothers, some young boys who were coming in to have their uh, dressings changed. They had been in a building that was targeted and they didn't get a call, but fortunately, they only had um, mild to moderate injuries And I remember so starkly sitting in the room with these children um, and a psychologist, an MSF psychologist was with us to help facilitate. And they, you know, we concluded the interview during which they had spoke about seeing their friends die and horrible, horrific things. And then they turned to the psychologist and um, asked for some stipend to cover their taxi home. 
And I realized these people could not, act, people in Gaza are so poor, they often cannot access healthcare, even if it is free, um, because they simply don't have the money to get to a hospital. And that was really, really stark for me. Um, and, and that's what, you know, it's, there are 2.3 million people in Gaza now, I believe. Um, and that's what, what they're facing. Um, I think something that's really important to remember is that um, this catastrophe, this horrible, devastating things that people are dealing with on both sides of, of the Gazan border, um, that they're both facing similar levels of devastation, but the difference in what they can access in terms of healthcare, thank God Israel has great hospitals, great doctors, um, great medical equipment. Gaza simply does not. Um, I believe the UN has said that only uh, two-thirds of essential medicines are in Gaza. Hmm. Um, the, the hospitals are simply lacking the uh, equipment, the medicine, and, and soon to come, the fuel to run their hospitals. Um, I believe each hospital has about four days worth of fuel to keep the generators running, to keep the machines running. It's now we're entering... I guess, the second day of no fuel. Um, so the international community needs to negotiate a way to get fuel into those hospitals as soon as possible, or casualties are just going to climb. Claire Porter-Robbins, um, thank you very much for uh, sharing your experience and giving us um, some insight on on what uh, some of your former colleagues and friends are facing uh, in Gaza mm-hmm. now. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. That's Claire Porter-Robbins, a former humanitarian worker and journalist who lived in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, We reach her today in Calgary. Uh, We will turn now to another caller, uh, Rasha Ayubi in Montreal. Hi, Rasha. Hi. Yes, hello. I'm very glad to have you on the program. I know you're you're Palestinian, born in Jerusalem. Uh, Tell me about uh, what you're thinking of um, in the wake of this this very deadly attack by Hamas uh, inside yeah. Israel. Um, thanks for having me, and thank you for the great show and the great questions that are coming up. Um, it's tragic, but I don't understand how anybody is surprised about it. Um, I think this conflict it, it goes in cycles, and each cycle, it's just getting worse and worse. Um, it's clear that despite Israel's complete and utter control, of the Gaza Strip, uh, is getting uh, the, the the abilities of Hamas are increasing, not decreasing, and that should tell the international community something. Um, I think when there is a lack of of of, of law, lack of human rights, lack of equality, um, things like this will happen because people get very desperate, and this reflects just how desperate the situation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and the international community has not shown any um, level-handedness when it comes to the, to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Um, and there's a lot of double standard. Um, you know, we don't talk on any daily basis or, or on any basis at all about, the, you know, some of your callers already mentioned this. You know, there are no medications that pass through because of the blockade. And so young pediatric 
cancer patients die. And they die because of two things. They either can't get the medication in Gaza, and if they were to go outside for treatment, they can't get permits to leave. But we don't see that on our TV screens. What we see on our TV screens are the young women that are being beaten, and rightfully so. We see it, the ones that are being beaten in Iran. But we talk about it because we don't like Iran. And the Palestinian kids that die, we don't talk about it because we like Israel. So we pick and choose what seems to be right in this world. And when that happens, then disasters like what's unfolding right now should not be a surprise. And I'd like to make one other point. Mm -hmm. This is not a Jew against Palestinian or a Jew against Arab situation. This is the Palestinians against an ideology, which is Zionism. Zionism was born as the land without a people for the people without the land. And it started bringing in the Jewish populations from originally Europe and then now from the rest of the world to be settled in the land without, you know, with no people. Mm -hmm. But there are people on that land. The indigenous Palestinian population is there. And nobody wants to see that. And finally, my last point, if I may... Yeah, if you can do it quickly, yeah. Yeah. We can't expect Palestinians to be able to politically be able to come up with a proper political functioning, healthy functioning system. For that to happen, civil society has to be able to organize itself. That can't happen because Israel is in control of everything. Mm -hmm. So... We can't expect Palestinians to be able to come up with the right system for themselves that works well if they don't have any control of anything. All right. Rasho, I'll have to leave it there with you. Um, thank you very much for calling. And it is always a, a, a challenge anytime you discuss this, whether it's on a, on a broadcast like this or um, around a table talking with friends or colleagues or the many Canadians who have friends and family in this region. When, and John, we were talking about this before we started in the studio today, when do you, you know, when do you start history? Do you start it in 1973? Do you start it in 1947? Do you start it with the Holocaust, which of course impacted many Jews, particularly European Jews and their desire to have a safe homeland? It is a, it is a very complicated question. As, as much as I'm uh, prepping you to, to engage on that. We've only got a couple of minutes, and I want to very quickly get to Daryl Jones in Fort Saskatchewan. Hi, Daryl. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I've got a very short time here, but you have a question? Fire it away, yeah. and John will answer it. Okay. The, uh, my question is, uh, uh, can the, why can't the UN get involved as a third party to clear up this problem in the Gaza Strip. It's been going on for years and years and years. So the UN as a body, yeah. can they get in, involved in this and, and uh, act as a third party? Uh, I hear your question, Daryl, and I'm going to throw that right now to uh, John Allen, former Canadian ambassador to Israel. Well, um, as you might know, um, the UN Security Council, which is the body that would have to get involved uh, if it wanted to uh, intervene in this, uh, has uh, five permanent members. One of them, uh, each one of them, has a veto, and the real outside player here is the United States, um, and um, it's really only the United States um, that can move this 
uh, issue forward. It's the United States that is capable of putting pressure uh, on Israel and to some extent um, on the uh, Palestinians. And I'm afraid that um, other countries, whether it's Canada or Europeans, simply don't have much a role, much of a role um, in in this conflict. So what we've got to do is uh, is try and encourage uh, our country and others to push the Americans uh, to try and uh, and uh, encourage in in a serious way. Uh, both sides uh, to come together. Uh, unfortunately, the UN by itself, um, as in the situation with Ukraine, uh, won't be able to do it. All right. Uh, this is um, coming on a weekend when we have seen hundreds of people die, first uh, through a, an attack by Hamas fighters who infiltrated Israel, killing uh, more than 700 Israelis. We know that hundreds of Palestinians have been killed in the airstrikes, which have followed um, in terms of Israel's response, and unfortunately, this is not over. However, our discussion, at least at this point, is we will continue our news coverage at cbcnews.ca and on CBC News Network, CBC Gem, and here on CBC Radio. But with that, I will say thank you to John Allen, Senior Fellow at the Monk School of Global Affairs, also Canada's Ambassador to Israel from 2006 to 2010. John Allen, thank you. Thank you, David. All right. And with that, we are going to make a hard turn in our coverage here on Cross Country Checkup because it's time for our Ask Me Anything, your stories and questions about car theft. Last year in 2022, there was over a billion dollars worth of vehicles that were stolen across Canada. My Toyota SUV was stolen off and the police told me that the VIN number was duplicated by a dishonest person at the garage who reproduced keys and then they used the keys to open the door and drive the car away. Much easier to sell 15 cars on the black market than it is to sell 15 keys of cocaine or 15 illegal guns. That's a few of the statistics on vehicle theft in this country. In Toronto alone, the number of vehicle thefts last year was triple what it was in 2015. Thefts recorded last year in Ontario and Quebec up nearly 50% compared to the year before. And we're not very good at recovering them. The national recovery rate for stolen vehicles is just 57%. So those are some of the numbers. Today, we want to hear the stories. If you had your vehicle stolen, please give us a call. This is an Ask Me Anything, so if you have any questions about how to protect your vehicle, we want to hear from you too. And we're going to start this discussion um, with Brian Gast, who is uh, Vice President of the Investigative Services Division at Equité Association. It's an organization that investigates crimes on behalf of insurance company, things like fraud, but also vehicle theft. He's a former officer with the Ontario Provincial Police, uh, and Brian is here live to take your calls and answer questions. You can reach out to talk about anything around vehicle theft, 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us, 226-758-8924. And with that, we'll say hi to Brian. Good afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, glad to have you here, Brian. Um, Okay, you and I have talked before because uh, I, as a journalist, have done a fair bit of work on, on car thefts. And I know some of the answer to this question, but why is it that 
the last seemingly three, four years, auto theft has just completely taken off in this country. Yeah, really, it's it's a an issue that's happened over the last several years. Uh, really, in the last two or three years, it's really taken a jump. Really, since COVID, uh, where there's a supply chain issue, there was a lack of uh, vehicles globally, and uh, Canada started being targeted for their vehicles. Organized crime uh, is largely behind it. A lot of our vehicles that are stolen in Ontario and Quebec are being stolen for export, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's where you really see the significant jump. Okay, and I know that because, um, as you know, I I went off to the West African country of Ghana and found um, a whole bunch of cars that uh, used to be in Canadian driveways on Canadian streets with Canadian drivers and got stolen and uh, ended up there. That's just one of the countries they, they have ended up in. Why is it seemingly so easy when we look at these videos on YouTube and social media People are stealing these cars in a matter of seconds. Why is it so easy? Yeah, I mean, we look at the vehicles themselves. Uh, in 2007, vehicles, uh, Transport Canada mandated that uh, there be a standard for anti-theft devices in vehicles. Uh, at that time, thefts in Canada dropped dramatically. Uh, but since then, since 2007, criminals have been finding ways to find vulnerabilities in those technologies. So really... The vehicles that are at risk are most vehicles because it's pushed to start button vehicles uh, using the, the, the technology to their advantage, looking for vulnerabilities, and then using the methods in which they steal them. We talked about this before. You did a great job with your, with your report in, in Ghana, and a lot of those vehicles would be all the, the targeted vehicles that we're seeing every day, the SUVs, the pickup trucks, the luxury, luxury sedans. Those are what the market is overseas, and that's what's being stolen here in Canada. And they've, they've, uh, they've had the tools, they have the technology, and uh, they're getting faster and faster. Uh, what used to be done at 2, 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the morning because they needed extra time, they are so efficient and quick at it now that they'll do it in broad daylight, and it just takes a mere seconds to do. Okay, so this is a national show, but I know that those vehicles for export are being stolen primarily from cities uh, that have access to a port. If they're being exported, they got to get to a ship. And so that means Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Vancouver. What about thefts that are happening in other cities, in other areas? Yeah, so a, a trend that we have been seeing, so even if you're not in the Ontario-Quebec region, uh, we're starting to see uh, these organized crime groups targeting vehicles in Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Vancouver, and then um, taking different methods to get them to the eastern ports. Uh, yes, they go to the western ports too, but primarily the vehicles that we're seeing that are being exported, like Ghana, like uh, West Africa, like Africa, Middle East, uh, they are going out to the eastern ports. So again, those are the, the, I would say, the largest bucket of vehicles that are being stolen, but also the revinning. That's a So revinning is an issue uh, coast to coast, uh, and it's uh, where they're stealing vehicles, they're revinning, so putting a new vehicle identification number on the public locations uh, and then having that vehicle registered and then either using it within their own organized crime group or what's even more concerning is selling it to the unsuspecting consumer where they think they're buying a good used vehicle when in fact it's a stolen vehicle that's tried to be legitimized through the uh, the revinning process and the criminals uh, will obviously profit off that. So it's a significant uh, profit margin. And then, I mean, I'd say the third bucket would be vehicles that are being stolen uh, and stripped as parts. So at a chop shop, 
Uh, they're being stripped down, sold piece by piece, and again, very lucrative as well. So there's many reasons to steal vehicles. No longer is it uh, just for the sake of a joyride. Yes, that still happens, but uh, what's really jumped is the, uh, the these organized crime groups, professional criminals that are using vehicle crimes to further their their criminal operations. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would never say that vehicle crime is just a property crime. It's a victimless crime. It's so much more than that. It's uh, these organized crime groups are profiting significantly, and uh, they're funding their their criminal activities. Yeah, a billion dollars of vehicles just last year. Okay, I have a million more questions, Brian, that I would ask you, but uh, that's not my job here. We should be getting to other people's <laughs> questions, and I'm going to turn uh, to that first question uh, with uh, Christopher Drummond in Charlottetown, PEI. Hi, Christopher. Hello. Tell me your story. So, uh, back in August, uh, we were traveling from Prince Edward Island with a group of uh players and parents for a national baseball championship in Laval. And we had our vehicle stolen from the front uh, parking lot of the hotel where we were staying uh, between 4.30 and 6 p.m. on a Thursday night. How'd they do it? (laughs) Well, uh, according to the police, uh, while giving them their report, they feel that it was either... Someone was able to copy the fob mm-hmm. of our key because I still have both copies or I still have both sets of keys or um, they were able to uh, come into the hotel or wherever we were and copy it from there. Or when I pushed the button to lock the vehicle, they were standing or sitting somewhere near it and were able to uh, just copy that and uh, push the button, get in the car and go. Dare I ask what kind of car it was? It was a Honda Pilot Black Edition. Honda Pilot Black Edition. Okay, Christopher, thank you for your call from Charlottetown. I'm going to go back to Brian Gast. Uh, Honda Pilot, um, we've been talking about uh, SUVs, Brian. Those still highly targeted? Yeah, absolutely. That vehicle is one of the targeted vehicles, and uh, he's he's probably bang on on how they, they, they stole it. It's either a reprogramming theft through the onboard diagnostic port, they break into the vehicle, they use the device to plug in and reprogram a key fob, or they do a relay attack where they've captured his the, the, the signal between the key fob and the uh, and the vehicle to uh, to start the vehicle. So it happens very quickly. Okay, so short of encasing our cars in cement, how do we protect them? Yeah, so for those two methods, uh, for reprogramming theft, it would be uh, there's an onboard diagnostic port lock that you can put on the, uh, the port. Uh, if it's a relay attack, uh, some key fobs have the ability to go into a sleep mode or you can shut them off or you can use a Faraday pouch. Something, anything that uh, prevents or limits the, the key fob from emitting that radio frequency mm-hmm. to uh, so that uh, they can't be captured. All right. The Faraday pouch, you'll see them at a lot more stores now. It really is just a pouch or a bag or something like that. You keep your keys in and, and the, the signal can't be seen through it. Okay. That, um, what Christopher was talking about, very likely given where it happened, the vehicle that it happened, a high likelihood that that was a vehicle that was put on a ship very quickly and sent into the country and sold um, because of geographically where it was. But let's head to Whitehorse, Yukon and, and talk to Kendra Morris um, because that's not an area that you you tend to hear about for vehicle for or theft for export. Kendra, what's your experience? 
Uh, I got my car stolen July 5th, mm-hmm. and I was lucky enough to get it back the next day out of gas. Out of gas, okay. Any damage? But, uh, not so much, uh, they stripped all my, they took all, they took all my tools and, uh, you know, they left my radio, they took all my tools and all that, and uh, they, they roughed it up pretty good, but it still drives, so. It still drives, uh, okay. Yeah. And, uh. I'm a senior, so if I lost my car, I'd be walking the rest of my life. Yeah, that's no good. And uh, just to lose no. your tools, that's an inconvenience, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I had one door that wouldn't lock. Uh, it's now fixed. Uh, keep your car locked. Don't leave anything in sight. Uh, and my car's in 93, so they'll steal anything, you know? Yeah, well, you've kept it well, yeah. if that's the case. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you very much. I'm going to turn uh, quickly now to Moncton, New Brunswick, and Reed Smith. Hi, Reed. Hi, David. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? You, you got Not a car stolen? I got a car stolen last summer. Yeah. Uh, it's in July, like a mid <laughs> midday grocery trip to the uh, trip to the grocery store, and uh, what we thought was going to be a normal day turned out to be not so normal. So we were in the store about 15 minutes, cars parked out front, and uh, we come out, no car. So it took a while to think about where that could be, mm-hmm. but it finally dawned on us that, oh my God, our car's been stolen. So we contacted police, and while they were uh, on their way, I went up to the manager's office and watched the video of the front of the store, and sure enough, there was a man with a jacket over his left arm who walked by us when we were coming into the store. Um, so that, uh, so maybe he was scanning for your, your fob at that point. Is that what you're thinking? Obvious, obvious. He scanned my fob in my pocket. Yeah. So we watched him leave in our car and drive away. So when police arrived, I, I realized that I had a, uh, a, um, app on my phone for find my GMC. We activated that and it was found 25 kilometers away at a certain address. So the police checked that address and left. And then they searched the area further beyond that, and they found it in a takeout drive through So they blocked it in. And uh, at, during that time, I guess, uh, OnStar contacted me asking permission to slow the vehicle down. I said, well, don't slow it down. Stop it. <laughs> but that's apparently they can't do that. Yeah. So uh, that OnStar helped. Um, the app helped. And uh, we found our vehicle two hours later. That's uh, that's quite the story. I'm glad you got it back. Not the case for a lot of people these days, but I'm exactly. glad to hear that. Exactly. But I would recommend anybody that uh, you, if you can get a protective cover for your fob of any sort, uh, do so. And, and like the other gentleman said, keep your vehicle locked at all times. It yeah. doesn't matter where you're going. If you're out of the vehicle, lock the vehicle, because that's, that's the way that the uh, world is today, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. There you are. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you. Okay. Have a good day. You too. I'm going to turn back to Brian here. Uh, Brian, I, I know you've heard uh, 10 million of these stories. Maybe not quite that many, but it seems like it's going to you're going to reach that at some point. Yeah, and that last one was actually a very interesting one. It's a variation from from what he said and what he saw in the video. It's a variation of the relay attack, where you normally see somebody at the front porch or the front door of your residence with what looks to be an antenna. They're trying to capture the key fob that might be just hanging on inside of that door. And then somebody at the car that has a device to be able to capture that vehicle. 
Now what we're starting to see, and this is thanks to our friends uh, in other jurisdictions in South Africa, where they were starting to see it's a proximity theft. So they will follow you into a shopping mall. They'll have a backpack on. They'll have devices. They just need to get close proximity to be able to trigger that uh, key fob to communicate back to your vehicle. Somebody will be closer to your vehicle, and uh, they'll be able to do that uh, that start of the vehicle, unlock and start it. So really, again, this isn't to be uh, uh, to put fear in everybody, but just make sure that everybody's aware mm -hmm. of their surroundings. And we, we always talk about the layered approach about uh, locking your vehicle, uh, always uh, never leave your vehicle running, even though it's uh, always um, a consideration as it gets stolen, you're just going to run into a variety store real quick. It just adds that opportunity for the criminals to be able to jump into your car and steal it. So yeah. to make it as more difficult as possible is, is great. Yeah, and it's a good thing to think about as we head into the winter months when you might be a little more tempted to leave things running to keep the car warm, that somebody uh, might see that as an opportunity. You know, Laura has texted us with a question, uh, and a question that I have heard a lot um, since we started uh, covering this story, that if the majority of vehicles are ending up on ships, why don't the Mounties and the insurance companies team up to see what gets on the ships. Now, that's that's Laura's question. I know you do actually do that, um, Brian, but there's still thousands of vehicles that are getting through and, and getting through quite quickly. Um, why can't it be stopped at the ports? Yeah, and a lot of it comes to pure volume. Uh, the, the actual, the, the amount of commerce that's leaving the ports. We have very good relationships with uh, the RCMP liaison officers, CBSA, at the various ports, and it's just how to how can we support uh, CBSA to be able to use it as a priority vehicle crimes as a, a priority, uh, provide uh, the ability to collaborate, work together, private public partnerships, just exactly like the questions asked, where you have the, the uh, law enforcement, the private industry, CBSA, with all our ex with all our international partners trying to curb this activity because as you said earlier it's it's seemingly so easy to get vehicles out of the country so if we can shut down that supply and demand uh, that will go a long way to uh curbing some of these uh, thefts for profit that are being exported all right let's go to Newmarket, ontario um that's an area that has been hit an awful lot particularly anywhere around the gta and particularly around highways andrew vatichansky um, has a question hi andrew hello hello I know you, you say you've tried the Faraday bag. That's the thing that's supposed to prevent the radio signal. Tell me, have you had much luck with it? Uh, let me tell you. So uh, I uh, read initially that uh, York Regional Police has great initiative to distribute Faraday bags among households. Yes, they were giving that, them away, yeah. That's why I thought, why not to help uh, York Regional Police and to come to their location and same time take uh, one or two bags for my cars. Mm -hmm. um, I got it. All is good. Thank you very much, police. And same time, what I'm a little bit surprised uh, that uh, when I put my key pops for my cars inside of Faraday bag and have it already, let's say, closed, engine can still start if Faraday bag mm -hmm. is inside of the car. So just please explain how it works. I understand it should prevent radio signal to go out uh, 
from inside the Faraday bag, but it looks like it works so perfectly. Okay, I, I'm going to turn this over to Brian in a second, but just one follow-up, because I, I know the kind of model of the Faraday bags that the York Regional Police were, were handing out there. I assume you were closing the top of it, right? That, uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely, of course. Okay, um, let me, uh, Andrew, thank you for your call. Let me turn that to Brian. Faraday bags, Brian, uh, that, that doesn't sound like it should be happening. No, it doesn't, and it, it's it's a good consideration to make. And uh, an assumption would be the the bags that Peel Region was giving and York Region uh, would would be well tested and, and and do what they do. And what you said about making sure the top is it was closed is a good reminder. If used properly and it's a quality Faraday pouch, uh, it should not uh, be able to emit anything. The vehicle should not start if you're if you're uh, if you're in close proximity to it. By uh, but I say that as a cautionary tale that uh, again everybody tries to make a buck whenever there's a crisis. And the number of Faraday pouches that are available online, some are no better than a paper bag. And uh, be careful what you, you purchase. But the fact is, this one's from uh, York Region. Uh, it, it should be one of the ones that uh, is highly effective. But uh, again, I, I haven't actually seen that one, and I'd have to look at it. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly that um, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, but uh, right. good that Andrew did the, the work there to see yeah. because you if you put the 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 key in a faraday bag and walk up to your car and it's got the keyless entry um the moment you try to open your door the door should not open and if it does then that faraday Correct. bag is no good um Correct. okay so uh you know one thing when when we have uh, in our own journalism here looked at the vehicles that are being stolen if i look in ontario for instance the purely electric vehicles very you know almost none of them are being stolen um, that is because of the there's no market for them in some of the countries that they're being exported to. There's no charging infrastructure, so they're, they're not necessarily being stolen. Um, but we're also seeing interesting trends around um, vehicles that have keys to start them, that those too don't seem to be stolen as much. And that actually gives me an opportunity to bring in Sheena McMahon, uh, who's in Victoria, BC. Sheena, you've got a question. Well, I have two now, having heard the Fire last away, one. yeah. Yeah. Well, how can we tell a good Faraday bag from a not very good Faraday bag before we invest the money to buy it? Mm. And my other question is, since the, um, since the push button starts seem to be easier to uh, steal, are car manufacturers considering, or is pressure being put on them, to go back to the uh, key the key? The key starter. Okay, good question, yeah, Sheena. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. a good one. I'm gonna I'm gonna turn uh, to Brian, and we'll start with that. I and mean, we've got the convenience, Brian, of uh, keyless entry, keyless start, just push to start, and all of that. But um, you talk to vehicle manufacturers. Are they thinking that convenience is coming at a cost? Yeah, I mean, convenience is definitely something that consumers want, and uh, I think there's alternatives to make the vehicle still uh, harder to steal. I go back to my early days in policing, uh, free, so it would be after 2000 or 1989, where vehicles were stolen, just had a key. Again, there's ways to do it. You just break the steering column and you use a screwdriver to steal the car. So there's there's still ways to do that. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that we go back to the key, but I think the manufacturers can do more to be able to uh, make it harder to steal. Like what's one uh, thing? What's one thing? What's, what's, what's one thing they could do? 
Well, basically, a vehicle now is a one big computer. So making authentication to make sure that uh, you know um, there, there, there's it's sort of like a computer where you, you need a passcode to be able to get that. Without that passcode, you can't start the car. Mm. And I've always said that uh, you spend seventy, eighty thousand dollars on a vehicle, and then you still have to get an aftermarket immobilizer that protects against relay attacks, CAN bus attacks, and uh, relay attacks. Um, and uh, having those protections in the in the vehicle OEM. Mm-hmm. Uh, would go a long way so the consumer isn't burdened with extra cost to protect their own vehicle after they just bought a new vehicle. Okay. Sheena had a second question there, and I've I, I got to move through to a couple other callers. So, Sheena, you know, if you're buying it online, I guess online reviews, uh, as much as you can trust yeah. them are the things to to rely on. Um, unfortunately, as Brian says, there are garbage ones out there on the market. If you buy it from a store and it's no good, like test it right away. If it's no good, take it back. Okay. Let's uh, go to Mississauga, Ontario, another area that is hit hard. Um, Peel Regional Police, uh, which police that area, uh, one of the you know the the leading police agencies in the country in terms of their understanding of auto theft and their ability to combat it. Um, Aftab Khan, though, um, you uh, your father-in-law had his car stolen, um, and you did something to that car before it was stolen. Tell me about that. That's correct. Yeah. So uh, last year in wintertime, yeah, we were visiting my father-in-law's house and. He, you know, I gave him a Apple AirTag as a gift, and I told him to put it in the car because I knew there, you know, these Toyota cars were being stolen. And we did that, and he had it on for a couple months or so. And then we were coming, we, you know, we had a good night dinner, and then the next day the car was gone. And then by the time we saw where the Apple AirTag was, it was already on its way to Montreal, Quebec area, and we couldn't retrieve the car. Yeah, and presumably getting on a ship. So this exactly. is yeah, this is quite something. It's got to be have to have quite frustrating that you know where the car is, you know that it's likely heading exactly. for a ship, and once it's on that ship, it's pretty well gone. But yeah. boy, is that frustrating. Um, mm-hmm. You you told the police, and yet they still weren't able to stop it. No, they couldn't. They couldn't do anything because it was outside of Ontario at that time. So mm-hmm. you know they were like, oh, we'll you know we'll reach out to Quebec police or whoever is local police there, and then we couldn't do anything. And, I mean, I did have a question for Brian as well. I know I we're yeah. back to shipping for a car again. So did, does he recommend getting Toyotas again, or do we ship for like a Kia or something? Okay, Aftab, I, I, I'm going to put that question to Brian. Sure. And Brian, I think part of the reason, so it's a Toyota that got stolen. Um, Toyotas are highly sought um, in, in many of these destination countries, these receiving countries, um, Toyota, Lexus, uh, have been stolen quite a bit. Um, what uh, what do you think when you're when you're looking to buy a car? Do you uh, do you review those most stolen brands? Yeah, and every so we're coming up to our annual top ten list and uh, the top ten stolen vehicles uh, nationally and regionally. And I always recommend consumers look at that and make an informed choice as to uh, the the likelihood that their vehicle may be stolen. Um, and I think that's a good consideration to make. And uh, they, they do change. They, they do bounce around. There's always some ones that are con- consistently in the top 10, but uh, they change as manufacturers uh, work to find um, remedies. Um, there, there, there's still a, numer- a number of vehicles that, are, that are continue to be in the top 10 that uh, hopefully will, will change. I do want to comment about that at AirTag. I think that's a great idea. We're working to get better. We're working to collaborate uh, uh, multi-jurisdictionally with the CBSA law enforcement 
in, in our organization to be able to uh, locate a, a lot of those trackers, whether it be an aftermarket or an OEM or a air tag. But I always give the caution, don't track it yourself. Make sure you turn that information over to police because that information may fit very, very well with other information and mm-hmm. never put yourself in harm's way uh, to retrieve your vehicle. That's just a, a disaster that uh, potentially could happen. Okay. Brian Gass from Equité, we're talking about auto theft. we got uh, less than a minute left here. So I'm going to just ask one thing from you more, and that is what, this is obviously a complex problem, but what needs to happen to make a real dent in this growing problem yeah so that is a complex problem and it's a complex answer but really uh limiting the vehicles that are that are exporting so uh, again doing what we can do to support the cbsa public safety making it a priority making it a, a the theft of vehicles the vehicle itself stolen vehicles a prioritized uh, export commodity that uh, that would have the resources that are required, that would really shut down the demand. If the vehicles aren't as easily um, remedied or, or being able to be exported, that, mm-hmm. that goes a long way. And I think the enforcement I, with the government of Ontario recently adding the um, the provincial auto theft team with dedicated prosecutors, and then these criminals will be tried for the seriousness of the of these vehicle crimes as opposed to just a property crime. I think that's a, a significant deterrent as well. So really adding deterrence criminally as well as making it harder to get the vehicles out of the country and having the vehicle itself harder to steal in the first place mm-hmm. is, a, is a great place to start. All right. And we will leave it there. Brian Gass from Equite, thank you so much. That's it for Checkup, the podcast this week. You've been listening to Cross Country Checkup's live broadcast on CBC Radio from October 8th, 2023. Now, if you want to share comments or appear on the show, you can go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. Thanks very much to all those who helped this week. Our phone screeners are Kiata Greco, Kate Helmore, and Chuck Mogat. Our TV team is Caleb Isaac, Frankie Fiorini, Brendan Sylvia, and Josh Raxa. Technical production and editing, Will Yar. Program assistant, Hannah Abrahamzi. Cross Country Checkup was produced this week by Abby Planner and Steve Howard. The digital producer, Paul Hanchuk. Senior producer, Richard Goddard. I'm David Common in Toronto. The next edition of Checkup, the podcast, will be posted after the live show next Sunday. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.